But I'm going to continue in my series this, this morning on called Missions Means Movement. And one of the things I hope you saw in those videos is every single one of those people that you, you heard share, they all had a sense of God's leading and prompting to move, move into a new area, move across the ocean, move into an unfamiliar, uncharted area like in Kenya, or even like what you heard from Mike here in, in, from Monroe, who moved away for school and came back because he's got a calling and a burden for the inner city here in Monroe. And so the idea of, of today, of Mission Sunday, and then last week, kind of part two of today, is that missions means movement. And here's the truth. All of us are called to be a part of God's mission. The missio dei, that is the mission of God. We are called, as, we, as Robin read in Matthew 28, we are called, if you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple, you are called to go. It doesn't mean necessarily go across the ocean. It doesn't mean even to move into the inner city. And I'm not here to try to recruit you or try to get you to sign up to, to do that. But as you heard Chris's testimony, Chris Cook, it was on a mission Sunday where God had burdened him and his wife to consider missions and to go over to Papua New Guinea. Some of you may, from today or in whatever God's timing in the future, may get a call like that. Some of you young people that are here that are trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my life? Where does God want me to serve? Who does God want me to marry? What does that look like? He may be calling you to missions. I, I think, think back to, to my early years in my 20s, and my wife and I were newly married and both of us have always had a heart for missions. My wife, even longer before me, I got saved when I was 17, but when she was in grade school, the Lord had put a burden on her heart for, for missions and for ministering to broken and, and hurting people, the poor and the disenfranchised. So we get married, and we, we really wanted to, to do inner-city ministry. We wanted to move to Chicago. Both of us had, had that burden, but it wasn't God's timing at that point. So we I moved to up here to Michigan, and I went to seminary, worked at a pretty big church. In fact, a very big church, about 6,000 people, lived in suburban America, the American dream, if you will. We lived in South Lyon, had a beautiful home, and yet... God was beginning to churn in our hearts and stir in us this desire to do ministry with the displaced and the broken of this world. We had no idea what that meant, but we were invited to go to a conference in Atlanta, Georgia called CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. They specialize on urban issues and urban renewal, church planting, etc. And so we were, got invited, but we're like, well, I don't know how we're going to do this. You know, it's like you know, flying from Detroit to Atlanta. Well, God has a way if he wants you to do something. And somebody from our church had, was giving away to a pastor. There were six pastors, or maybe more on that staff at that time. And uh, giving away free two, free, uh, two free plane tickets to fly anywhere on Delta or whatever. And we were like, we'll take them. And so we got two free air, airline tickets and flew from Detroit to Atlanta for this conference. I'll never forget the first night. We were in downtown Atlanta, beautiful city. And we were sitting amongst a couple thousand people listening to different speakers. And the first speaker was from India. A little bit easier to understand than Pastor Moses. But he had that thick accent. And he was challenging everyone to consider getting out of the comfort zone, like I talked about last week. And be willing to, if God was calling you, to move into the inner city. Or at least be involved to some degree in urban ministry. 
And I'll never forget what he said. He said, sometimes we have to unlearn what we've learned so that we can relearn what we need to learn. And he said it over and over again. So I never forgot it. And at that moment, I knew that God was stirring in my heart. It gets time. I was getting ready to finish seminary. It was, a, it was a kind of a natural transition. It was time to take that step, like Peter, out of the boat. It was time to take that step like Abraham and say, yes, Lord, I'll be willing to go to this land that you will show me. That land was Chicago. And so, of course, I was nervous because I'm like, we have everything in Michigan. We had a nice house. We had just bought it a little bit ago. We have my wife's extended family. We had a, a good church, stable income, the American dream, if you will. And so I remember going back to the hotel room that night, and I was nervous because I was like, I can't do this, Lord, unless my wife's on board. And if you're called to ministry, you need to make sure your spouse is on board. You have a calling together. Very important. And so I prayed and asked God to, to give favor. Because I had no idea what Angie was feeling and what she was thinking. I knew her heart for the Lord. I knew her heart for ministry, her heart for the poor, her heart for the city. So I remember pacing the, the uh, hotel room, looking out at the skyline. And I said, um, hon, I think God wants us to move to Chicago. And she said, finally. <laughs> I'm like, what? She's like, I've known that for quite some time now. I don't, I don't remember how many days. She's like, I was waiting for you. I wanted God to confirm the call. I love that about my wife. We've always been a team together. We always will be. And God had called us to that. Now, that was unknown like Abraham. I had no idea what that meant. What do we do? We had 10 months to figure it out. And God made the arrangement because when he calls, he calls. And so I was getting ready to graduate. We were trying to figure out how to sell our home. Angie was able to transfer her credits from William Tyndale College, where she was going to Moody Bible. Moody Bible is a very difficult school to get into, but she got in. God's favor, God's favor, God's favor. Through networking, we were able to land within the Southern Baptist Convention in a church planting organization and started a church. And I share that story because, again, the whole idea of this and then last week is that we need to be willing and open to what God wants to do in our lives. The problem is, like I said last week, we get stuck. Nothing wrong with comfort. Nothing wrong with stability. We need that. But we get stuck in the bubble. And we think, oh, I, I can't do this, whatever this may be. That this may be going across the street to your neighbors who are hurting or battling cancer or going through a difficult time. This may be going on a mission trip. This may be giving something financially. This may be bringing recon or making reconciliation, getting right with somebody that you haven't talked to in many, many years. It's that willingness to move. So the first point I shared last week was invitation, that God has extended an invitation to be a part of his work. Remember what I said, find out where God is working and join him. God is working all around. He's working right now throughout the world. He's working in Muslim countries, and he's working in dark places that you can't even fathom. He is working always, always. Our job as disciples of Jesus is to find out what he's up to, what he's doing, and then be willing to say, Lord, yes. Like, like Isaiah, here am I, send me. I'm willing, whatever that may be. So last week was invitation. This morning, the theme is this. 
my second point, receptivity. How did Abraham respond to the invitation? So let's go back for a review for a second. Genesis chapter 12 is our text. If you want to turn with me, you can look on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Remember that word we looked at? It's the leklaka Hebrew. It's an imperative verb. It means go right now. Literally start moving. Start walking. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I want to show you for a second a map, because some of you are visual learners. I had a few people say, can you have some visuals on the screen? So I want to show you a map for a second, okay? Just so you have an idea, if you can see that, of Abraham's journey. He grew up in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, southern Iraq, south of Baghdad, modern-day Baghdad in a place called Ur. We talked about that last week, a very pagan area filled with all sorts of, of pagan idolatry. And God had called him, if you can see the little there on the, on the right, right of the screen there, on the western, west part of the map, you can see that little pyramid. It's Babylon. He called him from that area, and he starts walking, going north, and goes as far as Haran. You see Haran? H-A-R-A-N. Haran is still in Mesopotamia. Now the question is, why did he stop there? Well, his father, remember last week, named Terah, his name in Hebrew means delay. Most scholars believe that as Terah was the patriarch of the family and it was a large tribe, nomadic people group, uh, many different people like servants and so forth. You had Abraham, you had his wife Sarah, you had Lot, his nephew. And when they got to Haran, Perhaps Terah said, okay, this is as far as we'll go. This is a little safer right here. Because the land of Canaan, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, was a very savage place, very dark. And so maybe Terah, feeling as the patriarch taking care of the family, let's just stay here. And so they did. Some scholars believe they stayed there for 10 years, maybe. It says later that, that Abraham, in chapter 13, was very wealthy had acquired much silver and gold and livestock. Perhaps he learned some trade and he made a living for himself and his family. They also acquired servants, it says. Perhaps that's where Hagar comes in the picture, who becomes Sarai's maidservant. We're not sure, but there's a possibility. And so they were there for some time. And then it says in chapter 11, verse 31, it says that Terah died. And then God says again, most likely scholars believe, Okay, Abram, time to go. Let's start walking. I have a land that I'm going to show you, and that land is the land of Canaan. Further north and all the way back down the other side by the Mediterranean Sea, which is modern-day Israel. And so Abraham went. So let's look at the text, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took, Abraham took his wife, took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, so like I mentioned, servants and so forth, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And we'll stop right there. So I love this because this idea is this. Abram 
went. There's that same word, okay? Yalek is the Hebrew word. It means to go. Literally, the idea of that word is to start walking. And I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again. Faith requires movement. We cannot be passive. We cannot sit on our hands. Peter said, Jesus, if that's you, when he saw Jesus walking on the water, when they realized it's not a ghost, command me to come. And Jesus said, come. Peter gets a lot of bad rap because he did take his eyes off the Lord. He began to sink down, but he was willing to step out of the boat. Folks, we got to be willing to step out of the boat. We have to be willing to go. And so Abraham went, note that it says, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him and so did his wife and others. And I love that because, you know, when God calls us, it's not a Lone Ranger calling oftentimes, it's a calling with others. For our call to Chicago was the calling for both my wife and I. The Lord called her as much as he called me. Together, we were together on this. And so it is often when it comes to God's calling. I had the privilege of doing some church planting um, strategy coaching when I was in Chicago and then when I moved here. And I was able to talk with couples who sensed God's calling to church plant in the inner city or beyond. And it was exciting because they had that little spark in their eye like my wife and I did. And it's, you know, green behind the ears. They didn't really realize what they were getting into and how difficult and how challenging it is. But it was exciting to be a part of that. And so Abram had his wife, he had his nephew and others, and they left to go to the land of Canaan. I love this quote from a commentary. This is a great insight here. The author, that is Moses, intended to paint paint a picture of Abraham's call as God's gift of salvation in the midst of judgment. As a way of sustaining this theme even further, the author has patterned the account of Abraham's call and blessing after an earlier account of a similar gift of salvation in the midst of judgment, the conclusion of the flood narrative. And I was thinking about that. Remember Noah. God says in Genesis chapter 6 that the wickedness of the, of the earth was so bad, man's heart was so corrupted and wicked that God regretted making mankind. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is the word grace. And so God had selected Noah and his family and started over with them. But here's what Noah did. Here's the receptivity. Receptivity is the willingness to consider or accept a new suggestion or an idea. It's the inclination to receive or be open to and responsive to an idea or suggestion or impression. And so God said to Noah, hey, Noah, I want you to build an ark. What? What is that? But it says in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 6, Noah did this And he did all that God commanded him. And then repeats that phrase again in Genesis chapter 7, verse 7. And Noah did all that God had commanded him. Noah was receptive. And so was Abraham. Let's continue with the quote. The similarities between the two narratives, Noah and Abraham, are striking, showing that Abraham, like Noah, marks a new beginning as well as a return to God's original plan of blessing all mankind, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then you think about Moses. Same with Moses. God called Moses out of comfort 
when he was there in Hebron as a shepherd back into Egypt. And then God calls Nehemiah, a foreigner in Persia, a cupbearer to the king. When he hears the report from his brother that Jerusalem's walls had been still completely in disrepair after 140 some years. And Nehemiah goes back to the land and brings about restoration, rebuilding. And so Abraham is called into chaos, the land of Canaan, similar to what God did through Noah and through Moses and through Nehemiah and many, many others. Because God, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos, over the, 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 the waters of the unformed matter of creation. And then it says in verse 3, and God spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So here's an application for us. When we think about our purpose, when we think about our calling, it is exactly this, to be willing to enter into difficult environments, sometimes even chaos, challenges within, challenges without, and entering into that with the purpose of bringing restoration and beauty. We sing about that today with that song, Grace. Grace restores. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. It's being a part of God's redemptive work in creation, bringing about restoration. All what we saw in the videos, the cooks, Pastor Moses, Pastor Peter, Mike Mead at Outpost, Selah House, they're all doing restorative work to restore God's creation back as it was meant to be. And so it was with Abraham. And so it is with us. So let's keep going. We continue in the text. So they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. That was a town there. To the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites, Canaanites were in the land. Let's stop right there. I want to show you another map. It's a little more detailed. And you can see as Abraham leaves Ur, he goes to Haran, stays there for a while, delays there. Then after some time, his father dies. He then continues on. You can see he goes up, which is now, what is that, modern day, like getting close to Turkey, I think. Uh, yeah, close to Turkey. You see Turkey over there. And so he goes up, and then he goes back down following what was called the Way of the Sea, the Via Maris. In fact, my, the group and I that were there in Israel with Pastor Kenny got to walk on that Via Maris. It's a major uh, ancient path that was it's thousands of years old. And Jesus would have walked on that. It goes all throughout that northern part of Israel by the Galilee and so forth. And so he would have walked on the Via Maris down and then eventually reaches Canaan. And you can see... It's kind of small print, but you can see there is Shechem right there. And he stays there, or he goes through there. Look what it says. He passes through Shechem. So he's literally walking through, and he comes to the Oak of Morah. Now, I stopped right there and said, okay, why there? Why did he go there? Well, Morah means teaching, as in instruction. And that would have been a religious place. 
And it says that the Canaanites were in the land. So that meant that it was a Canaanite religious place. So here's the picture. As I study this, kind of learn about it, it would have been a shady area in a very arid, dry, deserty type of place, which is, that's where it was. It was a shady area with all these different types of trees. And it had this main tree, this terebinth tree, they call it, they call it which is a kind of a form of an oak tree. Oaks are mighty and strong. In fact, the Hebrew root for that means sturdy. And the terebinth tree was this massive tree in the center of this sacred grove, and it was used for religious purposes. It was a place of worship, but not good worship, folks. It was a place of darkness, a place of demonic activity, and you name it. In fact, many of you know this, the Canaanite religion was very evil. All throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, we see the Canaanites. They worshiped the God of Baal. Now, Baal was what they called the supreme God who was even defeated his own father who had given him birth, or him and his goddess had given Baal birth according to these myths and false gods. And Baal took on the form of a shape and a bull, and he became the god of fertility, which meant that the Canaanites would pray to Baal to have children. And to get Baal to appeal to them or appease them and give them favor, they would sacrifice sometimes their own children. Perhaps right here at this Oak of Mora, because that was the place of ritualistic worship. And they would have sacrificed their own children. They would have in, involved in acts of immor uh, immorality and prostitution to appease the God of Baal so that they could have children and that the land could be fertile and they could have crops. They believed Baal controlled the weather system, the weather patterns, the lightning and the thunder and the rain and all of that. And so as one writer says, Abram went there and saw the blood splashed on the ground from the animal sacrifices and from the human sacrifices, the bones there, perhaps stepping around and crunching around, crunching bones as he walked through this very dark, demonic place. And look what it says in the text. Verse seven, then, the then refers back to verse six, meaning as Abram's walking through this, then the Lord appeared to Abram. Reveals himself, the Lord Yehovah, we talked about that last week, the supreme God, not Baal, the Lord God, almighty, appears to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, two things strikes me. Number one, he said to your offspring, Abraham had no children, right? That's the second test that will come. The first one is go, go to Canaan. That was a big test. Leave everything behind and go. The second test would come, Abraham, do you believe that I'm going to bless you and your offspring with your own biological child? Abraham was 100 years old at that time when God spoke to him that. That was a second test. So for Abraham to hear, your offspring will dwell, will, will claim this land, dwell in this land, that must have struck him as odd. Secondly, right here in this place of sacrifice and bones and blood and demonic activity and darkness. You want me to claim this, my offering to claim this land to be here? Are you serious? The Canaanites? It's like going right into the heart of Saudi Arabia to Mecca, the place of supreme supremacy to, to in Islam and saying, God wants me to, to start 
this ministry right here. And that is happening, by the way, very under the, undercover, under the radar. But it'd be like that crazy. And one writer says this, this is the land, God said, this is the land I will give you. You will take back the dwelling place of demons. Here on this hill of death, at this tree of death, my kingdom will come. Sounds very familiar to what Jesus would say hundreds and hundreds of years later. When he takes his disciples to a similar place in northern Israel, to a cave, to a temple dedicated to the God of Pan, the God of the underworld. Caesarea Philippi, and said, I've been there. We were there in seminary. And Jesus says, on this rock, literally this cave, on this place, I will build my church. Now, he's not talking about a physical building. He's talking about authority, the kingdom of heaven. It will pierce the darkness. John says, the darkness cannot comprehend the light. It's the same idea, foreshadowing. Abraham, right here, right here. Your offspring, will, I will give. I, the supreme God, will give you this land. So it says, so he, that is Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Bold move. Most likely, he would have cleaned up the blood, the bones, the false altars like Gideon had to do in the cover of night in Judges chapter 6. And he would have built an altar right there. Bold move. When did he do it? How did he do it? We don't know. He did it. And an altar represented in the Old Testament a place of consecration. God, this is your place. It's a word. It's the idea of authority. This is your place. I dedicate this to you. I'm offering this to you. I am grateful to you. He built an altar right there. Verse 8, from there, he moved to the hill country. Back to the map if you want to see. Well, let me finish reading the text. He moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abraham journeying on, still going toward the Negev. So you see back in the map, he continued, he'd stay. He built an altar near Shechem at this oak tree in this place of religious Canaanite worship. And he moves further south down toward Jericho, modern-day Jericho. And then he says, it says in the text, he pitched his tent there with Bethel on the west and I on, on the east. That's southern Israel. That's not too far from where all the issues are going on right now and have been going on since October with Hamas. That's the area. That's the area. And then it says... And there he built an altar. Again, what is he doing? He is claiming authority. Jehovah, Jehovah, you are the true God, not Baal. It would a bold statement, folks. You have to understand how radical this was. Joshua would do the same thing, taking the same exact route in the book of Joshua. You, book of Joshua, you can see this. The same exact route that Abraham took, and he built altars in the same areas. It's a way of saying, God, you are supreme. You are authoritative. He built an altar to the Lord. And look what it says. And he called upon the name of the Lord. First time we see that. Now Abraham is buying into this mission. He's like, I'm all in. Jehovah God, he is God. Not the gods of my ancestors in Mesopotamia. The gods of 
the moon god and so forth of, of Ur, not the gods of the Canaanites. Jehovah Elohim. Jehovah God. He is the Lord. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. Wow. Amazing. And then it says Abram's journeying on. He's going further south, going toward the Negev. Eventually, it says later, he goes, next, next verse, in fact, he goes to Egypt because of the famine. We won't look at that today. But you have to understand the significance of this. So now I want to give you, as I conclude, two points of application. And then after we do a song, I'll get back up here and give you some personal action steps that you can take if God's so calling you to at least consider being involved in doing any kind of mission or missional activity. So here's my two points of application. Number one is this. To be receptive means we must move. I mentioned that last week. If you get only one thing from this sermon and from last week, get this. We are meant to move. We live in a culture, in an American culture, of what's called sedentary. S-E-D-E-N-T-A-R-Y. I believe that's how you spell it. And it simply means we sit too much. We sit at our desk. We sit in front of our computer screen. We sit in our cars. We sit, we sit, we sit. And that is not good for us. And if we eat unhealthy at times, which we all do, I know I do, then we only, not only we sit, but we're not eating healthy and we're not moving our bodies. That is devastating to our bodies. And what happens is we become weak, our immune system gets weaker, etc. And so it is with our spiritual lives. We are meant to move. We are meant to exercise the muscle of our faith. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not saying salvation, the gift of salvation. It's more sanctification. That is the process. Once we are walking in Christ, we're saved and we're moving in, in maturity. We are to work out that. How do we do that? Well, how do you work out your muscles? You move, right? You do weights, you take steps, you, you keep on your phone, on your, on your uh, watch, you, how many steps you take, and you work. You move because if you don't move, your muscles will atrophy, and eventually you will not survive. And we have to work out the muscles of our faith, folks. We can't just come to church and sit in a pew and listen to a sermon. Yes, do that. We need that. This is like rallying the troops rallying the troops to encourage us, to, to edify us so that we can go out into the world and be the hands and feet of Jesus and do what he's called us to do. But we have to work out the muscle of our faith. Number two, further, <clears throat> movement oftentimes will lead us to face our fears or some kind of darkness. Don't miss this. God calls Abram to Canaan. And then he, as he's walking through, and he's going through this demonic dark place by this oak tree, this terebinth tree. God appears to him and says, right here, this is what I want you to do right now. I have found in my Christian walk, especially if you're open to being willing to go and do whatever God wants you to do, that God is going to say, okay, here's an area of your life that needs some help. Here's where I want to bring my restoration. Here's where I want to bring my sanctifying work right here. And you may think, oh boy, not that place, Lord. Not that place. I don't want to touch that place. I know I had to do that 
pretty early on in my Christian journey with my own dad because of how I grew up and the, the, some of the trauma and the abuse that went on growing up. I had to deal with my unforgiveness and my bitterness. And God said, this is the place I want you to go to. And I said, Lord, are you sure? I'm doing just fine. No, I wasn't. Because <laughs> you know what? We never do just fine when we just push things away, push it away, push it away, and we never do fine. And what I found is that God will call you to go into those places that are really hard to go into because he wants you to experience freedom. He wants you to be the best you can be in Christ. And so he took Abram into the heart of this darkness. He will take us sometimes into our fears, right? Our depression, our anxiety, our sometimes suicidal tendencies, our thinking, our broken relationships, our past, the abuse, the trauma, whatever it may be, and say, this is where I want you to build an altar. And you might think, what? Build an altar? Because what? God is all about new beginnings. Isaiah, behold, I am doing a new work. Do you not see it now? I will make a way. A river through the desert. I will make a way. Jesus says, behold, I am, similar idea, I am making all things new. Revelation. God wants us to be renewed. He wants new beginnings, just like in Abraham, just like in Noah. And perhaps there's something that you or I need to deal with that we've been putting off or not sure of and like, I don't know about that, God. Jesus takes us into our fears, not because he's sadistic or he wants us to be unhappy or struggle, but because he wants us to be whole and all out for him. And he says, now build an altar here. It's a, it's a symbol of submission to God. It's a symbol of authority that Jesus is your authority. He is supreme, not yourself, not society, not anything else. So here's the final truth. God will give you the tools. He will give you the affirmation and reaffirmation like he did Abram. He will give you the promptings, prompting, promptings and he will ultimately give you the guidance to do his will. But you must have the receptivity. You must be open. Will you pray as Isaiah prayed? Lord, here am I. Send me. Will you pray? Lord, I'm, I'm your servant. Mary, when she was given this news, you will conceive by the Holy Spirit. What? She was probably 13, 14, 15 years old. May it be done according to your word. Will you be open? Will you be receptive? That is my prayer for us as we think about missions, as we think about life in general in the Lord. Let's pray together. We'll do a final song and then I'll give a concluding thought and then we'll be done. Lord, thank you for the story of Abraham. It's our story too. All of us here to some degree have felt the nudge and the prompting to get out of the boat, to go. Doesn't mean we have to move across the country or the world move into the inner city or whatever, but it just means getting out of our comfort zone, being willing to face our fears, face our past, dealing with what we need to deal with. So Lord, I ask that you would direct us according to your will. We thank you for the testimonies of our mission partners. They were willing to respond to the call. Help us to do likewise in our lives. Help us to work out salvation the gift that you've given us with fear and trembling, trusting that you will guide and direct in Jesus' name.